24 hour party people. It's Tessa MTV. Welcome to another edition of Not So High Fidelity, your favorite little show where we talk about all things music and music related. With me today, as always, is the man, the myth, and oh, yes, the legend, Adam <laughs> Danger. Adam, tell me, how the hell are you today? Uh, pleasure to be here, Tessa MTV. I'm doing very, very well. Uh, I'm six feet above ground, so, you know, that's something to be thankful for. I'm doing well. My friend, how are you doing? Oh, you know, I'm living the dream um, as best as I can anyway, while we're all confined to home for the foreseeable future. Um, but hey, um, I'm making the most of it. I'm still getting my exercise in. I go out for my solitary quarantine walks. <laughs> and, and, you know, I use that time to just get away for a little bit, do a little meditation. I'm reading. I'm listening to a lot of music. I'm just kind of getting back to the things that feed my mind and, you know, seemingly just never really had time to, to devote to it. So it's actually kind of refreshing and it's a little rejuvenating. And so I'm glad for that. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely understand. I mean, if there's an upshot to this whole predicament, it's that I, I feel like it strips away all the excuses of, well, maybe I should be reading this book or I should really be checking out the show. I should, you know, what, why not check out this artist or something? And uh, there's something that you and I and our friend Johnny V were kind of discussing the other night was was partially about, you know, we can strip away and, and any kind of distraction or a lot of the distractions that we have and kind of just focus on really feeding our mind, feeding ourselves, trying to feed our body. So, you know, again, if there's an upshot to this, and I know there's a lot of people out there that are struggling and suffering, and mm-hmm. we kind of hope that if you're listening to this right now, this is just a nice little pleasant diversion, uh, but a positive one, a positive diversion, uh, but let you know that, you know, we kind of have to make the most of it and in a, in a you know, way, and I don't want to get on a soapbox or anything, but in a way, <laughs> you know, hopefully it allows us to really appreciate what we do have in our lives. When things go back to normal, and they will, things are, things are going to start coming around the corner. Uh, I really hope that each and every one of us just walks out of it and just we can appreciate more. Maybe we're living a little bit more because we can take stock of what's really important and um, and live a little bit more just because we've kind of erased all these kind of uh, superficial distractions. Yeah, I mean, I I agree this, although we're in an interesting predicament, it's certainly giving us so much needed time, I think, just to like I said earlier, get back to some of the things that we used to do and maybe just didn't necessarily have the time to completely devote to it the way that we wanted to. We're getting, you know, the opportunity to spend more time with our families, talk to each other more than we used to, unfortunately. Um, but, um, yeah. And, and all those things are good and, and, and we're, we need to count our blessings for sure. But um, so really all we're doing here is just having some fun and, and we're bringing you guys along for the ride. So we hope you find it just as fun as we do. Um, so with that said, let's uh, let's get into today's episode. Let's do um, it. Yeah. So the topic du jour, so to speak, is, you know, something any music aficionado has probably thought about at one time or another and that, of course, is 
what are the albums that were instrumental to us at certain points in that long and winding road that we call yeah. life? <laughs> yeah. 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 So um, Adam and I kind of hemmed and hawed over this um, the past few days. And uh, we decided, well, you know what, why don't we just talk about five albums that we feel are part of the soundtrack of our lives? And because we want to ensure that we give each of the albums that we're going to be talking about the respect that it deserves, we are turning this episode of Not So High Fidelity into a two-part episode, Super Spectacular. What do you think about yes. that? Oh, boy. Uh, I know you're asking rhetorically, Tessa MTV, <laughs> but I'm excited for it. I'm super excited, too. Um, so in today's episode, Adam is going to take us through his five-album journey, and then in the next episode, we'll follow up it up with mine. So before we get into it, Adam, I just want to say that I'm super excited about this concept because music is such a personal journey. And I really believe that the kind of music that you listen to at certain points in your life really shapes who you are as a person. And so although, Adam, I've known you for a number of years now, we were just talking about this before we started recording, actually, um, I'm really interested in hearing how these albums that you'll, you'll be talking about, how they help shape you, um, how they help shape the Adam we all know and love today. <laughs> so well, that's, Adam, that's high praise. Yeah, Adam, with that, let's put the needle on the record, so to speak. Let's get to it. All righty. Uh, well, thank you, Tess MTV, for the nice platform to set up. Uh, again, with this topic, I try to think of records that, again, were very important to me in my development. And one of the things I'll state right off the bat is these aren't the greatest records ever made. You know, this isn't a list of, of um, any kind of Rolling Stone list that you'll see. But again, these are records that I had a personal effect on me. I try to say that um, it was almost my St. Paul walking to Damascus kind of transformation. You know, I'm going in one way and I think about music and I've got ideas about pop culture in general. And then this record hit me and it totally changed everything for me and it really shaped who I was. And uh, in thinking about this concept, too, I, I realized that the records I picked were all different points in my life. And, and when I listen to them now, I can go back to that point in my life and see how I've become the man I am today. So with that being said, let's start off with the first record. The first record I picked was Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. I picked Pet Sounds. Um, so I'm going to take you back in time, folks. This was about eighth grade. I remember being at home with my parents and my brother, and my dad came home from the library, and he said, uh, look, son, I got a copy of Pet Sounds. Like I was supposed to know what this was or what it is you know i, I kind of knew the beach so were boys, you but... were you envisioning oh wow this is an album of pet sounds dogs cats uh, things like that yeah i don't i didn't know what to make of it i kind of knew it was an important record because we would watch these vh1 you know top 100 albums you're always suckers for that in our household i don't know if, if you were as well but oh, whenever yeah. they'd come on yeah you just sit and watch maybe three hours of it and they would go through each meticulous record and uh, have people talking about it. And so Pet Sounds would come up, and I was like, Pet Sounds? Oh, boy, like, what's this? And so I, I knew it was an important record, but I didn't know why. And I, I didn't know what I was in for. And so uh, my dad, as he's wont to do, uh, 
put the CD on a CD burner and we like burnt a copy of it. And it was our copy of Pet Sounds. And I Ooh, remember that's listening taking to me it. back in time, CD burners. <laughs> oh, well, my dad had like a three track CD burner. So you could put like three different CDs and then Ooh. program it. To, like, okay, I want track two, seven, and nine off of this one. And then, uh, oh, it was so cool. It was very high tech. Yeah, I mean, we had our own little cottage industry with that, but uh, that's not my story to tell. Uh, so I, I would say, like, I listened to it, and I didn't get it, like, the first time. And I think with any kind of record, book, movie that really becomes uh, a part of your life, it's not like it's instantaneous. It's not like it's a aha moment. You're just trying to think, why is this important? I think you start questioning, well, what makes this song, what makes this album so important? Like, what's the big deal? And I think what happened is, um, again, when you're in the eighth grade, you're living at home, you're a preteen, you're 13, 14, and what else do you have to do? Much like today, you're pretty much confined to your room. Uh, you just listen to music. But at that time, you know, I was, I was on the cusp of being a teenager and very, very far away from being an adult. So, you know, I was, I was changing and I was growing and I was starting to not understand feelings I was having about other people and and um, relationships I were you know might as well have been uh, a different language uh, so I, I kind of just go back to those days where you're laying on the carpet in your room and you open up your CD player and you put in a CD and you just listen to music and you look at the popcorn uh, ceiling of your wall of your you know ceiling there and you look at the walls and you just you just daydream you just wonder and there's a certain melancholy to it there's a certain What's going on? What's going to happen? Um, you know that things are changing and it's starting to get out of control for you. You don't really have control over your, your thoughts or your feelings or hormones, so to speak. So you start, you start really appreciating something that speaks to you. And I think Pet Sounds, Pet Sounds for me was an album teaching me about what love was going to be about. Uh, it kicks off with uh, Wouldn't It Be Nice, which is such a beautiful song and i think it's such a great song about wouldn't it be nice if we were older and we wouldn't have to wait so long and again that longing i think we're far removed from it at our nice age but back then it was something about wouldn't it be nice if i could just get out of this house and i could make my own decisions and i would find somebody that loved me and i love them and we could get our life started like there's that urgency to it and you're not quite sure what it is but you know that there's an urgency to it uh, there's almost like a sense of uh, optimism to it too. Yeah, there's definitely optimism that that you're just that next great adventure is just waiting for you. Mm -hmm. You just you don't even know what it is, but you know that there's something waiting for you. It's this vague, abstract idea. And as you get through the album, you get to uh, uh, God only knows, which is really kind of a bummer song. It's it's like uh, I may not always love you, but as long as there are stars above you. You may not need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. And it's the complicated part of love. And I think the aspect of um, uh, that, you know, this person may not be perfect, but you will always love them. You'll always cherish them. And God only knows what I would be without you. Again, I'm, I'm just so beholden to this person uh, or this concept. Uh, and then at the end, you get to Caroline No, and that's a breakup. It's like, where is that girl that I used to know? Where is the happy glow? How could you lose those special curls or whatever the words are? But it's it's Caroline. No, like you've broken my heart um, or I just can't deal with this grief. Right. And that's all 
part and parcel of growing up, I would say, for anybody's stories. When you first kind of have that first relationship where you're first trying to discover your feelings, uh, everything is so monumental, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so with that said, what do you think this album really helped you learn at that time in your life? What did you, what kind of takeaways did you gather from it? That's, that's a very interesting question. It's, I listened to this album so, so much. When I was out of eighth grade, like freshman and sophomore year, I used to walk uh, from my old high school, Central Catholic, to Trinity University. Sometimes I take the bus, but once I started just walking, I had about a half hour walk, and I would just listen to the song over and over again, or song album, pardon me. And I would call it my invisible friend. It was, mm. it was so comforting. There was, you know, you could listen to it when you were happy, and you could listen to it when you were down. I think it just taught me that music had so many, like, lush, uh, beautiful soundscapes that it could really strike at a feeling you know words can only go so far but the music itself could could emote so much more and i didn't know music could do that yeah it can make you feel things you've never felt before and, and sometimes like a, oh, sorry. yeah sometimes i feel like um the way a music a song makes you feel sometimes that can only happen with a song a, a person couldn't necessarily make you feel the way a song makes you feel. You're right. You're, and I was just about to say that like a chord, like a certain chord progression mm -hmm. just makes you feel something so much more than, you know, uh, a poetry book or anything. And, and that's exciting. And it's also kind of uh, mystical in a way, magical, right? You can't really tangentially explain this chord progression makes me feel this way. It's just a feel, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You're like, I don't know why it makes me feel this way. It just does. There's no explanation needed. Which, again, when you're like 13 or 14, you don't have any explanations you don't know why <laughs> yeah. things are happening, why things are changing. So there's a there's a magic to it. I think there's a magic that even now I've got it on vinyl, like a true hipster, and I can put it on and I can go back to those days of just walking on the, the pavement along North St. Mary's and just thinking like, yeah, once I get older, this is all going to work out. I'm going to live in the sun. I just I'm going to figure it out at some point. All right. Well, um, when you go back to this album, you know, even today, do you, do you go back to the way you used to feel as a teenager listening to Pet Sounds? Or do you feel something different now that you're older and you've learned so much since that time? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I feel something different. I feel like the album has grown with me. You know, it meant something when I was 13. It meant something when I was 20. It meant something when I was 30. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a little north of 30, folks, but don't get too inquisitive. Uh, but I think like all great art, any great book, any great movie, any great album, it's going to grow with you. And you're going to start hearing things that you didn't hear before. You're going to start maybe seeing it from a different perspective that you wouldn't have had without any kind of experience or or having experienced other forms of music or things. So it's a gift that keeps on giving. Great. Well, awesome. I, I love to hear. I actually listen, listened to Pet Sounds the other day when you brought this up. And, and I got to say, even though I've not really heard more than, um, for example, Wouldn't It Be Nice? That's probably the most recognizable song from that album. I mean, it's 
it's quite an album. I mean, it's got that, to me, it reminds me of um, that wall of sound that Phil Spector was so oh, famous sure. for. Yeah, you've um, got the ear for it. Yeah, but yeah, good, good pick. Uh, so you. what do we have next on your list here? All right, so I'm growing up a little bit, and the next album I have is Who's Next? Uh, Who's Next is an album that's a little more rockin', and it's a little more for men, and it's tough, and it's uncompromising. And this album kind of takes you back to the later part of high school and going into college. And uh, now I'm kind of moving away from that magic and mystery. I'm a little more, uh, you know, tough. I'm a little more brash and really just obnoxious. You know, I'm this obnoxious you've young seen a little man. Bit of wor- uh, you've seen a little bit of the world by this point, I'm sure. Yeah, I was 17, <laughs> you know, and you couldn't tell me any different, right? Uh, just imagine me in like a college shirt and like khakis and like little boots and just thinking like, yeah, I am tough and uh, won't get fooled again, man. And the album, a lot of the songs are about being in motion, like I'm going mobile and my wife is killing me and I've got to get away from her. And it, the whole album is constantly moving. And so when you're that late teens, you want to get constantly moving too. And you want to hang out with your pals. You want to, you know, maybe drink a sneaky beer. Like you have to be doing something or else, you know, it's the end of the world or else you're going to like crumble. And there's such a, a bravado uh, to the music, to the Who's music. And I think it all kind of comes together nicely in Who's Next. And a little bit about it is, uh, you know, Who's Next. Uh, Pete Townsend had this idea. It was called Lighthouse. And I can't explain it to you because he can't explain it to you. And people (laughs) can't explain. It was supposed to be this super interactive, uh, immersive experience with a crowd. And everyone was going to get hooked up into a machine. And we were all going to feel the same way. And he was going to emote a higher consciousness to everybody. And uh, when you hear the song Babel O'Reilly and you hear the little synthesis like dip, 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 the great the, way to open an album, by the uh, way. Well, he said that he input the information for, uh, oh, uh, Meher Baba, I think. He put this information into a computer and then this is what the computer like read back to him. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, how cool is that? It's like this is a computer interpretation of a holy man. Right. And it's all bullshit. But, you know, you're a kid or whatever. You, you want to believe it. And this is like Pete Townsend. So at one point, he's like this techno spiritualist. And at the other end, he's a lad. And it's about, you know, drinking and having fun and being tough. And no one's going to question you. Right. And so there's that kind of dichotomy in the music and dichotomy in the, the each song that you have. You know, oh, I want to be a spiritualist. I want the great Baba to, uh, you know, feed my spiritual mind. But at the same time, you've got, you know, John N. Wessel and Roger Daltrey and Keith Moon. And they're just about, I mean, it's not fair to say, but they're more about rock and roll and having Mm -hmm. fun and explosives and girls. And that's what I was into. You know, I'm 17 and 18. I just want to have fun and try to talk to a girl. Uh, But I was just well... I was well chuffed at myself. I was well pleased that I was this prized specimen of a man. And uh, all I needed was my big white uh, grand marquee to just drive all over San Antonio and just meet with my friends and uh, flex and never show emotion and always be tough because that's what you're supposed to be, Tessa MTV. You're supposed to be a (laughs) tough man, a macho man, as it were. So going back to Baba Raleigh, um, do you feel like, 
at that time that this song in particular was representative of the experience that you had as, you know, you're in your last eight, you know, the last years of your teenage experience? Do you think it's representative of that time? Do you feel like it was a celebration of the time? Or would you describe it as, oh, you know, the, the trials and tribulations of getting older, you're, you're about to approach those 20s? Sure. I think really the reason why we still listen to it today is because it's this celebration of I'm young and um, uh, it's only teenage wasteland, right? Like when you're an angry young man or an angry person, right? And not angry at the world for anything, but you've just got these rush of hormones and you want to take over and there's just a restlessness. And that's why the album keeps moving because you're restless and the album's restless. So I think it's, you know, I don't think it's so much about, oh, I hope I die before I get old, which was, you know, my generation. Mm-hmm. It was more just like a celebration of, of youth. And I think any young person can listen to that. And then you hear those thundering guitar licks. and That's what's in your veins, like that thunder that I need to get out and I need to do this and I'm great. And there's a bravado to it. Um, you know, I think it just it it's jet fuel that is on the pituitary gland of like your system. You're still growing. You, you think you know everything. Uh, he he he. You don't. <laughs> but uh, but that that powers you anyway, and you're invincible. I think it comes back to that feeling of being invincible. Yeah, I definitely think that this album exudes that feeling and. You know, especially the way that it begins with that song and that loop um, synthesizer. I yeah. mean, it just makes you feel like you can take on the world and nobody can stop you. I think, too, I have this memory. Um, and this was after 9-11. I don't know if you remember. They, Paul McCartney, I think, put together this huge rock and roll benefit concert in New York. And it was a concert for New York. Did you ever watch that? Did you ever catch that? I vaguely recall that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I remember I was 15 and I'm watching it and you know, I think Bowie's on there and uh, Paul McCartney, maybe you too. But the band that really brought the house down was the who and all they played was won't get fooled again. And uh, I think behind blue eyes uh, (laughs) and who are you? Right. And you watch it and you just see, what I think Pete Townsend was talking about was he was in communion. The whole band was mm-hmm. in communion with these first responders and these poor folks lost, uh, you know, their loved ones and friends. And, and this was this beautiful cathartic experience, right? And it was, it's all caught on tape. And you just see these guys with, you know, tears in their eyes and holding up photos of, the people that they lost it uh it's just so powerful because you can see how this music again going back to it's the core it's not so much the words it's not so much mm-hmm. the poetry but it's really the the music just struck such a chord pun intended with these people and it was just almost like a, a release at least a temporary one right you know these folks had to go back and and many of them um you know unfortunately suffered afterwards uh, with just kind of the, the debilitating um, aftermath, you know, those horrible events. But I, as a teenager, it was so formative formative for me to see uh, how music had such a huge connection with these people. Even You know, and this was 2001, this wasn't 1971. 
but I think that's it really, you know, it wrote that on my heart, how mm-hmm. important that was. And I, there's, a, there's a song on there, and I was just talking to my wife, Tori, about it. It's called Water. And it's not one of the most well-known songs. And the song, essentially, I've seen Pete Townsend talk about this in an interview. He says that water is about, I need spiritual water. I need something to refill me. I need uh, an oasis that will feed my spiritual soul, right? But I need to also couch that in a song about, we need water and maybe somebody's daughter. Right. Like I can't be super spiritual. I still have to be cool and have to be about women. It has to be a blues song and a blues metaphor. Uh, but it, it's kind of it's kind of bittersweet. And I think about that time. It's like I both want to be both spiritual, but I also want to be a lad and talk to girls and be. Yeah, cool. you want to you want to get in touch with that hedonistic side. Yeah, for sure. And, and I can't I can't be honest with myself that, oh, maybe there is a spiritual side. I just didn't see it. Right. Like I am yearning for something. And maybe it's, you know, uh, a good time. Uh, I'll be, but I don't know it. And I'm not honest with it because I'm too tough and I'm too brash. And, you know, these, uh, these shoes aren't going to buckle themselves kind of thing. All right. Well, another excellent pick there, Adam. So where are we going next on the journey? Well, I'm aging up a little bit. I'm in college now. And an almost kind of direct <laughs> defiance of who's next. I put down Plastic Ono Band, John Lennon. Uh, This is an album, I believe, 1970. This is John Lennon's first solo album post-Beatles, right? He put out some some weirdo music, uh, like in 68 and 69 with Yoko Ono. And one of the things you love to do, Tessa, MTV, (laughs) is send me YouTube videos of Yoko Ono going, oh! Oh, my goodness. I mean, God God love her for what she's doing, and and that's her art, and, and... you know, nobody's nobody's gonna dog her for that, but God bless, it's so funny. And I know it's not intended to be, but yes, I certainly love to send you those during the day at work and <laughs> and just have a laugh. Yeah, uh, it's it's tremendous. But I never get offended because you know, I think part of the act is like you you have to react to it, whether it's humor, whether it's disbelief, whether it's you get it. And I'm not going to, I will not, dear listener, tell you that I understand everything that's happening when it comes to auto-destructive art. Um, but I think it is just to prove you're alive. And I, I one of the tenets of, uh, and this is not to go on Plastic Ono Band, but, you know, auto-destructive art with what Yoko was doing in the mid-60s and, um, and all these other people. And even Pete Townsend was that, listen, uh, the nuclear annihilation is just days away. We have to do something to show that we're alive. We have to do something so extreme and daring just to get your attention, to shake us out of this uh, you know, haze because we're walking around. And maybe not unlike today, we're kind of in a trance. We're just trying to make it day by day. And we can't think about the big topics because we're just trying to survive, right? We're, we may know somebody that's suffering and, and the news and everything tells us like death, the wolves are at the door, right? So you kind of get into a a haze and, and a loop almost. And yeah. so you need something that's like shocking and destructive uh, to protest this, this, you know, uh, march of death almost. And I think that's one of the tenets of auto-destructive artists. It do something so wild and crazy and extreme that you have to get people's attention just for a split second. So they stop thinking about, you know, these huge you know, impending doom. Yeah. It's almost as if, you know, it it snaps you out of 
the drone that you've been in and it gets you to open your eyes and see what's really out there and open your mind. Definitely, definitely. I think that's one of the tenets of it. Again, I don't, I'm not going to write a book about this, but I, I can, and I can appreciate that aspect. I can appreciate it. And so when it comes to Plastic Ono Band, I think one of the things that you have to consider is John Lennon makes this album post Beatles. And this is, he's coming out of this bubble, right? You imagine you're one of the four most uh, celebrated people in the history of the world. And from 1963 to 1970, you couldn't do any wrong. And people wouldn't even come after you. Maybe there was some, you know, uh, something put in a, a tabloid rag or whatever. But for the most part, you were a celebrated celebrity. And everybody loved you. And I guess in John's case, too, he had to cover up a lot of insecurities. Uh, if you don't know his story, you know, his dad left when he was very young. He was about five. And then his mom was a very young teenage mom. And so she gave him up to his her older sister, his Aunt Mimi. So he grew up with this stern older Aunt Mimi and Uncle George. And he resented not having his parents around. And when he got to 16, he started, you know, uh, kind of being a, a regular 16-year-old. He formed a relationship again with his mom. And his mom had already remarried and had another family. And so there was kind of that relationship, but I think there was a lot of tension there, like, you know, hey, this is my real family. And, uh, and so that was, that was real tough. And then unfortunately, as he was kind of getting that relationship back, uh, his mom was killed by a drunk uh, off-duty officer. And so he was only 16 or 17, right? And I think by that point, he'd met Paul McCartney and stuff. Uh, but that was something that he always kind of went back to that was just this deep, deep, in his DNA kind of insecurity and fraught tension that he lived with. Um, yeah, needless to say, he experienced a lot of trauma throughout his life. And I think on top of that trauma, he developed this callousness. Like he had to be the cleverest person in the room. He had to be the leader. He had to uh, tell jokes, right? And then he had to bully people. And I think, you know, he had to assault people sometimes if, if, they thought there was any kind of weakness. He had to shroud that weakness uh, in him and hide that pain for so, so long. And so from 1963 to 1970, imagine being one of the four most famous people in the history of the world. And you feel like a fraud because you mm -hmm. have to cover it up. You have to be clever. There's no way anyone can think that you're uh, less than a man, less than macho or not all there. And it, I think it ate him up for so long that he finally confronts it. And in this album, he you were reading about it, Tess MTV, and tell me you were reading about Primal Scream Therapy with Dr. Janov. Is that correct? Yeah. So I was uh, doing a little research on this album, again, because it's not one that I've I've listen, listened to thoroughly. And yeah, um, I was interested to see that this album was very heavily influenced um, by his primal scream therapy after the Beatles broke up. It focused a lot on uh, emotional release of the repressed trauma that he had throughout his life. So, you know, as I, as I went through each of the songs and, you know, was listening to the things that he was singing about, um, it's kind of, kind of hard to listen to at, at first, at, at least for me, it was, you know, just hearing about all his, his trials and tribulations 
as a youngster and even as an adult. It was it was kind of interesting to to hear about all of the things that he struggled with throughout his life. Yeah, I think that's that's what kind of makes it so in- interesting and intriguing, and I think what's what makes the album uh, so unique to me. Once I heard this album, I was like, I can understand where Nirvana comes from, right? I can understand mm-hmm. where uh, Kurt Cobain would come from, and it, it. I feel like you can draw a line from Plastic Ono Band to In Utero. You know, again, another person that was dealing with all kinds of trauma, not just, you know, uh, growing up, but relationships and drugs. And again, John Lennon was in the same point. He was, he and Yoko were trying to kick a nasty heroin habit at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and again, being in the press now, people, he was a villain and she was a villain and they were getting accosted by the press that, oh, you broke up the marriage and she's it's Japanese. All it's all she her fault. It's all her fault. She broke up the Beatles. And you're a weirdo <laughs> and you're into all kinds of like peace movement, but you know what I mean? So imagine being, you were a beloved darling and now you're a joke and people are coming after you and that can wear on anybody, but imagine wearing on him. So I, I, the reason I feel like I identify with this album is because I got to a point where I feel like I, I was starting to see the world maybe a little more clearly and I was starting to maybe get in touch with my feelings a little bit more instead of being brash and, uh, and tough, you know, that was all that was the all-consuming purpose, you know, to be this man, this idea of a man, right? I could, I could really take a, a breath and think, oh, you know, maybe it's not just being a drunk frat boy all my life, right? It's mm-hmm. I can be honest and sincere about things, and maybe actually confront some insecurities that I had about myself. And and what better role model than to see this person who I really care about and I love the writing, and it just it struck me like, yeah, why don't you confront these things and be honest and be sincere about how do you feel? Uh, and it's okay, you know, it's really okay. The world doesn't come to an end. Yeah, I I would say that he was completely vulnerable um, when writing and, and, and making this album, he was just letting it all out there for everyone to see. I mean, like you were saying, he was part of the biggest band the world had ever known at that time. And although lots of people were seeing him, the entire world was seeing him at the same time, nobody really was seeing inside of John Lennon and all the things that he may have been feeling or repressing. Definitely, definitely. I think you hit the nail right on the head with vulnerability and repressing things. And I think, and I'm not saying like I was, you know, some kind of uh, really tortured soul or anything, right? Like, let's, let's get serious. But I think we can all kind of uh, identify that with with a certain, uh, to a certain degree. And, And also just, again, it's okay. Like, it's okay to feel these way. It's okay to maybe feel a little disillusioned about things. Sometimes when you're growing up, things don't work out the way you thought they would. Uh, they works out differently. And just having that kind of strength and resolve not only to confront it and accept it, but try to find ways to move on and to heal. Um, so again, I, I feel like that was just um, a sensitivity that was like stabbing its way out, right? Out of this veneer of mm-hmm. a macho-ness or anything. But uh, yeah, I definitely love listening to the album. Sometimes, it, you know, Mother, right? And just, he's shrieking and, you hear that he, you know, was bleeding on the microphone because his vocal cords were so shredded. Uh, the songs are simple; they're straightforward. I think some of the the genius of John Lennon's all of his songs are that they're simply just good songs. Like 
that their DNA are just really good. Now you can fluff them up and you can put all kinds of effects on them. And, and that's cool too. But when you just play acoustically, they're beautiful songs. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, another great pick there. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So where are we going next? All right. Let me take you back to the year 2012. Thereabouts. I don't know. I guess. I can I can remember what I was doing, but I can't tell you the exact date. Um, and so I'm I'm out of college, and I lived in Chicago for a little bit, which looms large in my legend. And uh, I had met a cool person. Her name was Tessa MTV at work, right? And uh, let me tell you about old Tessa MTV. Uh, great taste in music, a good pal, and uh, we would hang out uh, on the weekends and sometimes weeknights, and introduce me to cool people like Johnny V. And we would just talk about music a lot. And uh, one of the things that really opened my eyes and ears uh, would be uh, just different albums. And I was really kind of getting into kind of like, uh, I don't even want to call it punk because I don't believe in punk, but that's a whole other show. Uh, but I was listening to like Velvet Underground, like cool alternative, early alternative uh, music. And one of the albums I really just got hip to around that time was Horses by Patti Smith. Um, and I'm looking at the album cover right now. I've got it here in my room, sitting atop my nice Victrola. And uh, and I don't know if you remember, Tess, I would like after work go running after work. I was like, mm-hmm. you know, I used to like go jogging. And so I would, I put this on my MP3 player. Uh, I will not What's name that? any brands. What's oh that? yeah, MP3 player. <laughs> plug in my headphones, <laughs> uh, and I would run. And I today today, in fact, I was driving home and I was showing my wife. This is where I used to run. She's like, how did you run? The, the concrete's so uneven. And I was like, yeah, no, I hurt my ankle so many times. But I had to run. You know, I had to kind of get this energy out. And I'd listen to Patti Smith. And it's a great record. I think if Plastic Ono Band allows me to confront being sensitive and, and uh, all kinds of concepts of who am I? What am I doing? And then Horses starts to kind of form an identity. And Horses kicks off with the line, Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Yeah. For a kid that went to Catholic school for 12 years, that was so revolutionary. That was so, it it turned my world upside down just hearing that line. And and, uh, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say, you know, that's probably one of the greatest lines ever to begin a record. Um, But going going down the path of uh, religion, it's, it's, you know, quite sacrilege, don't you think? But um, it's also, to me, kind of sort of like a declaration of independence, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I think you're hitting the nail right on the head there. And I think that's what it is, a personal in, uh, declaration of independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you grow up, and I'm sure we've had kind of had similar run-ins with the law of religiosity, but uh, when you're growing up, it's like you've got these sins and they're going to be counted against you. And you're just con- all you're doing is you're tightening that noose, brother, with all your your mortal sins and your venial sins. And if there's only some way somebody could save you, but you don't want to do it because you keep sinning. Right. And it's like, no, please, I don't want to sin. I just think about girls all the time. <laughs> and I don't I don't want to. I'm 19. I'm 20. But I do. Right. You're just and, trying to be a, a good Catholic boy, but, you know, there's the and, girls, too. And, and being told that, like, you're evil and that's sinful and, you know, there's, it's, it's very, it's a tough bag. And so when somebody says, 
well, he died for somebody's sins, but not mine. I own this. I own who I am. I own my scars. I own everything. And it's, it's crazy to think like, oh, I'm not just some, you know, uh, beleaguered uh, person that worries about, you know, being good on the right side of the ledger going into heaven. It's like, no, uh, this whole philosophy of like, yeah, I am going to, you know, make mistakes, but I am who I am and I'm comfortable with that. And again, forming that identity and wearing that as a coat of arms almost. Uh, mm-hmm. That's how the album kicks off. And you hear Gloria. Again, we come back to the spiritual aspect. Like it's, I don't think there's a, there's a coincidence that it's Gloria. We think of like Save Regina and all those little mm-hmm. songs that we sing at church and still do. I happily do. Like, it's fine. I get it. But I think it's, it's more complex. And I don't think it's so much as being blasphemous as it is pointing out, you know, control that other people and other institutions try to uh, stick you with, right? And, and, and shame and all kinds of questions we don't like to ask ourselves. But uh, if you've got the guts, if you've got the fortitude to do it, it's a worthwhile journey because you learn more about yourself and you learn more about things and you can accept things. And you're, you're not living in fear anymore. And I think up until now or up until that point, fear of what does this mean and what's going to happen and what if they think about me in this way uh you know if you can just let go of that for a little bit the world is so much better the world is so uh beautiful it's your oyster so to speak yeah i think you use that old cliche i think you've used it very nicely in this regard (laughs) smtv but uh going down through the rest of the records you know you heard uh birdland birdland joined this beautiful beat poetry, which I never really got into beat poetry and on the road and Kerouac and all that Ginsburg business. You know, I, I could see it, but I didn't, I wasn't getting it, right? Mm-hmm. But I think this is the first time I heard, oh, look at this kind of rhapsodic uh, lyricism with this awesome angular guitar, this Lenny K guitar, like, oh, this is so cool. You could do this with the music. You could do this with poetry. You could marry them together and so beautifully it becomes something even more than that and, and it's it's exalted in its own way uh on top of like birdland land is a great song redondo beach redondo beach is i think my favorite song on the record have you heard that one i have and it's interesting that you say it's your favorite song because isn't it about suicide yeah it's about I believe it's about a lesbian suicide, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also love, there's a great demo version I have of Patti Smith. And Morrissey does a tremendous version of the song. Really? Uh, yeah, and he did it, I think, in like the early 90s. Uh, I believe it was more for like a live show. like So you can catch like live versions of him doing Redondo Beach. But mm-hmm. it's, uh, and Morrissey and Johnny Marr were big fans of Patti Smith. There was a song on this record called Kimberly. Uh, that they reworked. They said they reworked, and it's called The Hand That Rocks the Cradle Is Mine. It's the same song. They just changed a couple of things. But check it out. You know, do a, a comparison, compare and contrast to it. Uh, but Redondo Beach is a reggae song, but it's a song about suicide. So, again, you take a <laughs> you take a gloomy subject, but you add, <laughs> like, a, a fun reggae beat to it and it's just so uh, subtle you know subversive that you know the smiths did a whole career out of it i would say in my own little opinion thereabouts but you walk out of that record michael stipe said that once he heard patty smith horses he felt like his arms and his legs were 
were moved all over his body and he was just transformed and reconfigured in such a different way. And I felt like I had the same kind of experience with it. I did think music could do that and be so slick and be so cool and have so many different themes and just be so self-contained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to Gloria cause I got a, a, I've got an interesting question for you. So, Shoot. so this song she sings it from the male perspective. Yes. The song is about how this guy is preying on this woman that he sees and he wants to go and talk to her. He's thinking about approaching her and he's kind of like gathering up the courage to go and do it. Um, whenever you were thinking about approaching a girl, a nice looking girl you see in the bar, you see in the club, did you ever have this song kind of playing in the background of your mind as like encouragement? No, but I should have. I will say <laughs> this, though. I'll say this. Like, on those nights, if you said, hey, man, we're going to hang out downtown, I'd listen to this record. I'd go for my <laughs> run, and this is what would get the juices flowing, right, and kind of get the moxie going and my little attitude and my little strut and my little voices that come out and my little Elvis, like, Elvisian sneer, right? And, um, again, one of the things we talked about earlier in a past show was, like, this is a song I put on. I want to go out and kick some ass, like, yeah. And this is a song or a whole album that I would put on and think like, yeah, I'm ready to go out for the night. I'm going to put on my nice leather jacket and, you know, my sickest uh, smile smirk almost and, you know, try to be clever and witty. And, you know, it was never that predatory talking to a girl like, um, excuse me, <laughs> have you heard this record before? My name's Adam. Would you like to get to know me? And it was never anything uh dangerous as my yeah. own de plume betrays me here but no i think it was something that that i think you've hit another nail on another head here uh that it does get you excited there's that excitement there's that thrill mm-hmm. of the night you know here comes the night which is not on this record but there's that thrill almost that oh i'm in control and i can do what i want to do and i've i can be honest and it's okay and i can own these things you know that's a very very dangerous position to be in and again i'm in my mid or early 20s, let's say, 23, 24, uh, still living at home. I'm making a nice couple of dollars at my current gig. So I was there to, you know, uh, go out and dance, drink beer. And, uh, you know, if I was lucky, meet somebody, usually not that lucky. Uh, But it was cool, you know, and that's what I wanted to do. And I remember being that age, and I was sitting in this break room at our old employer, and these two guys were, were talking. They must have been about five or six years older than me. And one of them was just like, you know, I'm just lucky I get out once a month. Boy, howdy, I can't get out of the house. And uh, well, I just get too tired. And I just thought, man, that just sounds like death. That just sounds so boring. I hope I never get, he's only 27 and he's already like confined to the old jail cell that is the home life. Like you'll never catch me doing that. I'll be rocking and rolling, you know, till they have to roll me over. Yeah, it's almost like, they were they were settled or settling and they were okay with that that and, scared me to yeah. death uh spoiler alert that's how my life has turned out and it's fine <laughs> by me it's fine that's- well you know when you're that young of an age you said these guys were probably what in their very early 20s and they're already talking like that no they they've 20s, not lived yeah. life probably and that's sad yeah i i guess but i i just remember thinking like now, I'll never be this fuddy-duddy that's just going to go home and 
uh, not go out and not experience life. And now I'm like, going out, that just sounds exhausting. And that sounds like a lot of money. How am I going to get home? Uh, oh, I'm going to so be... Like if, I'm I, gonna if I'm not somewhere before 10, don't don't even you know yeah. bother going out, right? For real. Like, 9 o'clock, and I'm like, maybe putting some shoes on, and my wife is like, where do you think you're going, mister? And I was like, nowhere, ma'am. <laughs> But uh, but no, uh, Su- or Susie, uh, Patty Smith horses, uh, just a tremendous record. I, I definitely uh, instruct all of you listeners to pick it up and, and take your own journey. I even recommended it to one of my buddies on the Stable of Studs podcast, uh, Tanner, and he was like, "Oh, this fucking rocks." I was like, "You've never heard this before," and now I'm taking on the mantle of "You've never heard this before." Come on, <laughs> give me, and you think you know music? Come on, give it a listen. Here's an education, friend. Yes, definitely a great, great listen. Everybody out there, go right now. Go find Patti Smith Horses on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your music. You're not going to be disappointed. All right, so let's round it out. The fifth and final album. What do we got here, Adam? I have Hunky Dory by David Bowie. Uh, I chose this record, again, I don't have to go back to where I was in life, but I was probably 28 or 29 by this point. So a couple of years had passed, and I want to say I was, I was outside of a breakup. I was in this weird period, which is between your last breakup and then when you get married. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think you're kind of moving on from, obviously from a relationship, but from you're changing your values and your perspectives a bit, and you're ready you know, I'm ready to start this next part of my life. And all the nights of going out and carousing are somewhat in the rearview mirror, but slowly but surely they are. And I get, I'd be running. I'm always running in these cases. You would, couldn't tell by looking at me. But I, I listened to like uh, Man Who Sold the World, this whole David Bowie kick. And it was like Man Who Sold the World, uh, Hunky Dory, obviously Ziggy Stardust, uh, Aladdin Sane. But I would keep listening to Hunky Dory. There was something about it. There's something I really couldn't describe uh, that I just, I felt so akin to. And I remember driving uh, in one case. Do you remember that little bar? Was it George's Keep that was near La Quintera? That like cool little, I was meeting uh... up with you and like Johnny V, I think, and some of our pals. You know what I'm talking about? It's like you, it's like near La Quintera and you had to drive up and it was like this rich person's mall. Like you can't oh, see. Oh, yes, yes, George's Keep. Yes, very yeah. fancy bar and it's still open, I'm pretty sure. I, yeah, that's wild. I parked my little like 2010 Corolla there and it was a it was the jalopy of the lot, right? All these cars were so much nicer. <laughs> it never happened to me before. But I remember just listening to that album and that was an album I'd have to listen to like every time I got into a car and I'm just, okay, I'm going to start off with Life on Mars or Quicksand or uh, Song for Bob Dylan. And I felt like the album was so sophisticated. And I think what makes the album great is it takes all of these influences from different kinds of music, like dance hall music and folk music and Velvet Underground and whatever, and synthesized it into one working piece. And uh, I think you take a song like Eight Line Poem, which, you know, the lyrics themselves kind of just describe like a room, like a kid's room and then overlooking the window. But it's really not even about the words. Again, it's about the mood. The Mm -hmm. words help create a mood and the music uh, helps create this whole mood that you could put any words in there uh, and it would still work. And I think one of the reasons I think Bowie is a great artist is some of the work 
you have to put a part of yourself into it to get something out of it, right? It can be a little uh, obtuse at times. It could be a little abstract, like Buley Brothers at the end of the record. It's just, it's almost like white noise. Like if you're watching Stranger Things and you're 11 and you're putting on the white noise just to try to get a message out of it. That's all the album. That's what that last song is. It's not supposed to be anything, but really it is supposed to be about yeah. something, but I can't tell you what it is because I can't decipher the message. Well, I think, I think, this album, Hunky Dory, I think a lot of the themes that he was writing about and singing about had to do with uncertainty. You know, there's doubt, nothing is permanent. Changes is on this album. He's talking about, you know, changes are taking the pace I'm going through. Maybe that's what you were identifying with and relating to is you were in this period of transition and you were just trying to figure out where you were among the chaos. Maybe that's what it could have been. I do like that interpretation. But I think at the same time too, I was okay with it. And for the first time I wasn't the angry young man and I wasn't the daydreamer and I wasn't the emotionally wrought sensitive type. And I wasn't trying to overcompensate and be cool. I was all of these things at once Mm-hmm. in some sort of equilibrium some sort of harmony and it was fine and it was okay and oh my goodness like you know i can be so many different things i'm comprised of all these different influences uh, i think honestly looking back at the the discography this is one of bowie's like records that's just about him because the next record is ziggy stardust and it all becomes conceptual and i am the rock god who's come down to save humanity and this is all through this lens and all kinds of uh, layers upon layers upon layers i feel like these songs are just uh, my name is david bowie which isn't even his real name uh, yeah but here's what i believe and there's a song called kooks and it's a charming song to his son uh, we all know it's like a what is it, duncan jones right yeah so the director so his name was actually zoe Zoe Bowie, but he changed it later in life. He changed it to Duncan. Right. And but it's what what a cute song. And again, it's about his son. This is a family song and it's not about you know soul love or it's not about the man who sold the world. This is about me being your dad and I want to go on this ride with you. And if Mm -hmm. uh and if the homework gets you down, we can take the car and drive downtown, right? And like what a sweet sentimental saccharine song. Again, when I was younger, I would have been like, oh, what interminable you know, yeah. sugar and parental. But now I'm like, oh, that's just so sweet. That is dead. Oh, yeah, it's almost like son. he was he was excited about being a father. And... Exactly. Uh, and not that I'm a father now. Uh, I mean, more on that to come. But <laughs> again, I, I, I feel like there's just a completeness about this album uh, and that it's okay. And I think I read this on Wikipedia, so I'll take it with a grain of salt. But Bowie came out and saying, ah, I'm getting it. I'm finding mm-hmm. my feet. And I think yeah. that's where I was at. I was I was finding my feet. I was finally okay. And now I'm a little older than that now. And I'm listening to country music and uh, staying in with the missus and watching Tiger King and all the things <laughs> I was worried about and I didn't want to become. Uh, it's all here. And it's okay. And yeah. I'm okay. Well, all right. Um, Adam, I think that's quite a list you've got there. I think our listeners will agree. Um, So, and I want to thank you for sharing those stories with us. I could, you know, genuinely hear the smile on your face when you were talking about 
these albums and it was almost like we were going back in time with you to listen to them all over again. Um, I think especially again in, in the time that we're in right now, I think a little nostalgia does us good. Don't you think? Can't hurt. (laughs) (laughs) It certainly can't. Well, all right, guys and gals, I think it's about that time. Adam, any last thoughts here? Uh, No, I just want to say thank you, Tessa MTV, for being such a wonderful host. I think you asked the great questions. Uh, You're a good friend to me. Uh, You made me feel safe and that I could express these things uh, that normally I would have to be cool and shroud in some sort of secrecy. But no, this was a lot of fun. I hope it was fun for you. I can't wait to uh, talk to you next week about your albums and listening to your albums that you, uh, you recommend and how they were formative to you. Uh, again, uh, let us know. This is Adam Danger Productions. This is on Spotify. Let a friend know about this. Maybe this is a cool... If you're anything like Tessa MTV and I, uh, you and your friends, all you talk about is might be music and albums and movies that deal with music and literature about music. And these are just wonderful conversations. So while we're social distancing, maybe call them up, chat them up, uh, talk about it, listen to it, see what you think. Maybe you think I'm full of it. That's okay. You you wouldn't be the first, but uh, Adam Danger Productions, not so high fidelity. Let us know what you thought about it. All right. Well, um, again, thanks so much, Adam. It was really great going on this journey with you. And guys, be sure to tune in next time where we're going to continue with my five album journey. And I'll tell you right now, it's nothing like Adam. (laughs) (laughs) It's cool music. It's it's interesting music. Let's say that. Oh, boy, um, I can't wait. Yeah. Um, most of my albums are not from the 60s and 70s like yours. I noticed that. Um, uh, yeah. About your... yeah. Uh, but... It's only eight years. Like, it's an eight-year range from 65 or maybe 65 to 75. So it's 10 years. So. Yeah. 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 Well, all right. Uh, thanks again, guys. And uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>